We're going to come to a time now where what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage from the Bible and we're just going to talk about what it means. Uh, why does this even matter right now? Who cares? And how does it apply to our lives today? Does it apply? I think it does, which is why we're going to look at it. So if you have a Bible, I would love it if you turn to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's a brown one right in front of you, hardback one, and it's on page 760. 760. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, the smaller, impossible to see numbers are the verse numbers. And when you found that, if you would stand together with me if you're able, and we'll read together through this passage. John chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Now this is a really, really long passage, so I'm not going to read all of this. Uh, I'm going to kind of just walk us through a bit of the story, read some, talk a bit more, read some. The the first 16 verses of this chapter is really just describing the context of the story. Jesus got a good friend named Lazarus, who's got two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Lazarus one day gets really sick, not just like laid up with flu sick, but sick like I'm not going to get out of bed again. And so Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus They say there in verse 3, Lord, the one you love is sick. So they're sending word to Jesus. Hey, basically saying, would you come and help us? Would you do something? What we read as we go on is that Jesus actually doesn't leave right away. He stays where he is another two days. And then he says, okay, let's go ahead. Let's go ahead to Judea. But this place is the place that they had just come from earlier. And Jesus had actually almost been killed. People weren't too happy with him there. And so his disciples are like, well, we're going back to there? Why would we go there? They wanted to kill you. And Jesus is like, no, no, we got to go there. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and I got to wake him up. And, and not appreciating Jesus' poetic voice, the disciples are like, well, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. Let's just stay here. And Jesus is like, okay, guys, Lazarus is dead. All right, he's died. And then he says, look at uh, verse 15. He says, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. Now let us go. So they head out and they go back to Bethany. And that's where we pick it up now in verse 17. If you're using this Bible, you'll see a little heading that says, Jesus comforts the sisters. That's where we're going to start reading now. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. (coughs) Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary, those were the sisters, to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, (coughs) who has come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said. He's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went out to him. Now Mary gets up quickly. She runs out. And all the people who were there comforting her think she's headed back to the tomb to cry again. So they're like, okay, let's get up and head back. They follow her out. And Jesus is still outside of the city. He hasn't come into the city yet. So she meets him 
outside of the city. Verse 32 now. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, well, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb, and it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. If you remember the King James, it said, he stinketh. I always appreciated that. Verse 40, Jesus said, did I not tell you if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God to bless this time as we look through this passage together. Father, I want to ask right now that you would open our eyes to your word, that you would help us to see what it is that you want us to see in this passage, help us to understand it, to believe it. We believe that this is not just some ancient historical document that talks about something you did a long time ago. This is a living book that actually wants to say something to us now, today. Help us to know what that is. Help us to believe what you show us. And help us to do something about it, to follow what you show us. So God, we're trusting you to do that. And now I ask, as always, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth? Amen. All right, I'm going to need help from somebody. All right, you had your hand up first. Anna, come up here. I need you to help to... Just to demonstrate something, I think what's going to help us understand. Come up over here. We can all see you. Now, your birthday's coming up pretty soon, right? No. In June? Yes. That's pretty soon. No. Let's just go with that. It's soon. Ish. Now, let's, I want you to imagine it's your birthday today. Hey, happy birthday. And I come over to your house. Ho-ho. I come over to your house. I knock on the door. You open the door and I say, happy birthday, Anna. I got you a gift. But then, you're looking at this, right? But I do this. I say, here, I got you something. It's a a Starbucks card. It's $5 on there. So uh, thanks very much. I hope you enjoy it. Now, what are you thinking right now? You're thinking thank you, but what, what about this? What do you think about this? You're wondering what's inside this. So maybe I see you looking at this gift, and I'm like, oh, you mean it? Oh, sorry, this is actually for me. I brought a gift for me because, you know what? We're going to be at your party. You're going to be opening all kinds of gifts. I didn't want to feel left out at all, so I brought myself just some, a little something to open. It's not much. It's just a, a puppy or a time machine or something. You know, It's okay, right? Is that okay? 
It is? Wow, okay, so you're a better person than most of us. <laughs> most of us are going to be like, derp, what? You, you, okay, all right, thank you, you may sit down. You can keep that, actually. It really is $5. <laughs> I really am that cheap with Starbucks cards. <laughs> okay, let's see if I can not strike out as badly here. Ladies. You're going to head to your friend's uh, wedding on the weekend. What's the one thing you're not allowed to do when you're getting dressed for that wedding? Wear white. You don't get to show up at your friend's wedding wearing that nice little white thing you picked up at H&M or whatever. You can't do that. Why? Because apparently, I just learned this this week. I didn't know this. It takes away from the bride. She's the only one that gets to wear white. You don't get to show up wearing white. Now, we look at those situations, somebody bringing their own gift to a party, showing up at a wedding wearing white, and we think, we, we get that those situations are wrong. We say, you can't do that. Why? Well, because they presume that although those celebrations are supposed to be about somebody else, somehow we're still making them about us and our happiness. And we say, well, you can't do that. But yet, I know we laugh at that, and those are extreme examples, but... If we could be honest with each other this morning, I don't, I don't know if we can do that. It's church. Let's try. If we could be honest with each other, I wonder how many of you would be willing to admit that that is actually, those things, that's exactly how each of us think life should be lived as well. That's the purpose of life as well, that it's about us and our enjoyment of it. That we are all basically, we're a bunch of Winnie the Poohs who are saying, you know what, the only reason for bees is for making honey. And the only reason for making honey is so that I can eat it. But that's us, all of us. To one degree or another, we think life should be about us and our enjoyment of it. Who, who, who's already agreeing with me? Anybody? No. I don't see anybody yet. Okay. Maybe you want to say, what? No. That's not true. I'm not a present bringing white dress wearing. I, that's, I don't think life is about me. Okay. All right. Let me just ask you. Let me just ask you a few questions. You help me understand. Why is it then that when you were driving here just this morning, you were ready to ram right into the back of that person in front of you driving 30 in the 50 zone? Why? Why, uh, when it takes more than like five seconds for your Facebook or Instagram video to upload, or uh, you know what, you see somebody ahead of you in a grocery line opening up a change purse to pay? Why does that send your blood pressure like through the roof? Why when you see a friend uh, getting an opportunity or an award that you wanted, why does that feel so unjust? It's not right. Or if you're a Christian here today, why is it such a faith-crushing experience when God won't just sign off on the nice life plan that you drew up for yourself and he actually asks you to do something different? calls you to do something that maybe feels outside of your comfort zone. Why is that? Well, what I'm asking you to consider this morning is that maybe, just maybe, the reason behind each of those feelings of injustice and, and offense is the reality that right underneath the surface of our shiny, socially acceptable exterior, every single one of us in here believes that the point of life should be us, me and my enjoyment of it, and how dare anybody, anybody, even God himself, get in the way of that enjoyment. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know where I need to be? Why are you driving so slow? What is wrong with this phone? People need to see my posts that I put up. 
totally self-important. Life is about me and my enjoyment. I mean, we, we see this clearly in really young kids. It's demonstrated, obviously. I mean, if you've ever been in a nursery, a, a kid will walk right up to another kid, right across the nursery, and he will grab the toy that he wants right out of his hands and say, it's mine. Why will he do that? Well, because that's what will make him most happy. All I'm suggesting is that I'm not sure we ever actually really outgrow that passionate pursuit of our life enjoyment. I think we just get better at rationalizing it. Maybe we're better at uh, justifying it to other people and to ourselves. And yet, first of all, I think the obvious problem with that to everyone in here is probably should be if everyone in here thinks they're the point of life, everyone in here thinks life should be about your enjoyment, how's that going to work out? How long is it going to be before we're all just like, wait, what, what do you mean? You're the point. No, I'm the point. It's not going to work out. It doesn't work. And I think as we've tried to live our lives that way, we've, we see that, obviously. It doesn't work. But well beyond that, the even greater problem that every single one of us in here faces as much as we might want to order everything in our lives and set it up to, to, to make life about us and our enjoyment, the inescapable reality that every single one of us in here faces, I don't care how old you are, I don't care how smart you are, how fit, uh, 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 how many liters of kombucha juice you drink a day, it doesn't matter. Every single person in this room will at one time face what I'm going to call the roadblocks to life, of sickness and death. Those are roadblocks that each one of us are going to run into. They're kind of like they sit like massive boulders right in the center of our highway of life enjoyment. And they just sit there. We can't go around them. We can't go through them. And when we run full force into those boulders... They just strip away every, every little thing, detail that we tried to set up. Oh, I'm going to make my life like this, and, and people are going to follow me this. It just takes that right away. It, just, it rips the illusion of control out of our hands like a toddler screaming, mine. I think that's one of the biggest reasons we, we fear death so much. We, we rage against it because whether we're willing to admit it or not, death is the ultimate loss of control. It's coming for all of us. You can't get around it, and, and it just says, you're not in control, actually. I can take it from you in a second. It robs us of our ability to make our lives about us and our enjoyment, and guess what? Death, it has a 100% success rate. There will come a time when your Fitbit heart rate reads zero. It, it, it has a 100% success rate on all of us. So what do we... Well, what do we do? What's, what's the solution to facing this common enemy that all of us have? Well, for some of us, the answer is just to ignore it. We just are going to walk around like this, la, 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 no, I oh, can't hear you, sorry. It's just like I'm just going to ignore it, and I'm going to ignore it by just pursuing life and enjoyment as hard as I can, as though you could just outrun the problem if you drove fast enough. And then for others of us, as the poet Dylan Thomas wrote, we rage against the dying of the light with everything we have in us. Man, with, whether it's through diet and exercise, research and medicating, it's just a, a full-on daily yoga, kombucha, manuka, honey, 
quinoa assaults on the wall of death. We are going to break through that boulder. If I can just punch hard enough, I'm going to break through it. But whether it's one of those solutions or a thousand others that we come up with, the result is always the same. We lose. The house always wins. But what if there was another way? What, what, if, what if somebody found a way so that although sickness and death would still touch us, they could no longer rob us of life and enjoyment anymore? What if somebody had the power to smash right through that boulder in our way and our pathway to life and destroy death's power once and for all? Would you be interested to know that? Would you want to investigate that a bit more? That's what I want to do this morning here as we talk through what we just read here. Over the past uh, eight weeks as a church, we've been going through this series of messages called I Am. That's what you see on the poster at the back here with the big lion head. I Am, looking at eight things that Jesus told us about who he is in this Gospel of John. And the reason he was doing that and the reason we're doing that is because Jesus doesn't want us to just know a bunch of stuff about him. He doesn't want us to know a list of facts so we can check the box and say, yes, 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 okay. He wants... He really wants you to know him. He wants you to know who he is so that you can have actually a relationship with him. He wants to have that relationship with him because it's only in having a relationship with Jesus that we can actually be changed by him. So far, the things Jesus has revealed to us about who he is over these past eight weeks are that he's God, he's bread, he's light. He's the gate, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, the life, and the true vine. And if those things sound crazy and what in the world does that even mean, I invite you to check out our website and you can see what we said about all those things that Jesus said about himself. Finally, this morning, what we're going to look at is Jesus' last I am statement, which is this. We read it in our passage. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And what Jesus means by that, and what we're going to be talking about here this Easter Sunday morning, is that that means Jesus is saying, I am that one who has the power over death. I am the one who has the power to break through that boulder in your way to life. And I'm the one who's come to actually give you life. Give you true life. Life that's better than anything you could ever have achieved in your own pursuit of it or according to your own definition of it. But in saying, I am the resurrection of the life, and not saying, uh, I am just one of a number of different ways to resurrection in life, what Jesus is also saying is that in order to know this freedom from the power of death and the fear of death, and in order to have this life to the fullest that I want to give you, what that means is, we can no longer be the point of our lives. He has to be the point. That's what that means. The question we need to ask ourselves is, is it worth it? Is that worth it to you to, to be finally free of that fear of death that's coming for all of us, no matter what our age, no matter what our fitness levels, is it worth it to you to be free from that fear, even if it means you having to step down from the throne of your life? 
hand over the keys to someone else? Is it worth it to you? Well, we'll give you some time to think about it. We'll, we'll talk about what Jesus is saying here, and that's what we're going to look at for the next couple of minutes this morning. This is the whole point of what we celebrate as Easter, and what we believe is, is the one hope we have for truly living life and enjoying it. That's my prayer that God will reveal that to you today as well, either for the first time or so that you would know it even more deeply and richly than you already do. So if you have that passage, John 11, still in front of you, if you don't, would you open your Bible again just follow along with me? I want you to see that this is not just me talking. I'm not just making this stuff up. I'm, I'm just simply showing you what the Bible says about this. So we'll look at who Jesus is and how it is that he gives us this life when we see him is the point. Okay, the first thing we'll look at now this morning. Jesus has love for the dying. Jesus has love for the dying. Now, this is really important for us to look at because it shows us, first of all, rather than being some distant deity way up in the sky who just drops down solutions on our problems, it means God actually really cares about us. He, he, he sees us and really cares about our problems. And he wants to do something about it. And we see that here in our story stated explicitly in verse 5. Look with me there. Now remember, Jesus is just being told by Lazarus' sisters, uh, uh, the, the one you love is sick. And yet, remember, we also read that immediately following verse 5, when Jesus heard that, he didn't go right away. He just chilled where he was for another two days. And so this is really important because that seems like a pretty uncaring action, actually, to hear that somebody's sick and just be like, no, 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 I'm going to stay here for a little bit. So, let's read what the response was in verse 5, what, what Jesus says about himself here, or John says about Jesus. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It states that as a point of fact. He, he loved them. Which means, now, that needs to become a filter through which we see and understand all of Jesus' actions after that. He starts with Jesus' love for them so that we can understand these actions which seem uncaring, which seem unloving. We can read it through that truth. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to like his actions or we're going to understand them. I mean, any, any kids in here this morning, I'm going to ask you. Let's just say you get to school one day and you text your mom and dad. You Facebook message them or whatever you say. Guys, I forgot my notes for my presentation. My presentation's at 10 o'clock. Help! Exclamation, exclamation point, like big face emoji, whatever. You send that off, and then at the end of the school day, 3 o'clock, your mom and dad come sauntering up, sipping on a peach bubble tea or whatever, and they hand you your presentation notes. Here you go, sweetheart. How are you going to be feeling at that moment? Good? You're going to be like, at least, you're going to be like, where were you? Didn't you get my message? Oh, no, I got your message. Here's your notes. But I failed the presentation. I needed them at 10. If you'd been here when I called you, I wouldn't have failed. What I'm saying is that that's the exact same response that Lazarus' sisters have to Jesus when he shows up. You see it in verse 21 and verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Where were you? Didn't you, 
Get the message? And at this point, they're feeling anything but loved and cared for by Jesus. And maybe that's your experience too, I don't know. Maybe in your own life, when, when you have exhausted every other means of help that you could, just in some sort of desperate, last-ditch effort, you just said, okay, uh, God, I don't know if you're there or what, but if you are, help, okay? Help me. I need your help. Help me. And then nothing happened. He didn't show up. And so you carry that hurt and that lack of understanding with you now because where were you when I needed you? The Bible is very honest here in showing us that that's exactly how Martha and Mary felt as well. It doesn't kind of sugarcoat, oh yeah, everything Jesus does, everybody gets and loves. They were, they were angry. They were deeply hurt and disappointed by Jesus. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But what Jesus does in response to what they've said here is so profound, it leaves us both with no doubt that Jesus truly did love Lazarus and his sisters and that this story isn't made up. How do we know that? Look with me at verse 33. Go to verse 33. Mary has just expressed her her devastation to Jesus. Let me read this in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. And why would he do that? Why? Especially, why would he do that? When we already read in these earlier verses, he'd already planned, he knew he was coming to raise Lazarus from the dead. What's the point of weeping? Why would he weep in that scenario when he already knows what he's going to do? And this is how we know this story isn't made up because if this was just some kind of Jesus folk legend, this is how this would have gone. Uh, sisters come up, blah, blah, blah. Jesus, where were you? Why didn't you help us? And Jesus is like, just hang on. Just watch this. Where would you lay them? And they would have jumped right to the tomb. They would have gone right to the tomb, and then Jesus would have stood there, and he would have been like, all right, watch this. Everybody stand back. Raise up Lazarus. That's how those stories go. Hero comes in, saves the day. Everything's fine, but that's not what we see Jesus doing. Yeah, he gets there eventually, but what does he do first? He weeps. He's mourning over the death of his friend and over the heartache that he sees in Mary and Martha. Why? Because he truly loves them. He does love them. It wasn't because he didn't love them that he came later than they were hoping. So he weeps. He's not staying aloof and distant from their suffering. He's entering right into it. And we need to know today that that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. That's the message of the Bible and of Easter in particular, that God did not look down from heaven and stay distant and aloof from our pain and our suffering and our dying. He came and left all the riches and glory of heaven and entered into, waded into all of our hurt, all of our suffering and sickness in order to do something about it, to do something that we could never do for ourselves. Why? Because he loves us too. He loves us. 
famous end zone verse, John 3, 16. That's what it tells us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. We may not like, we may not understand the delays of God or, or, or his denials at times, but coming to earth and, and laying down his life for us that supreme demonstration of love always needs to be the filter. It needs to be the lens through which we now see all of God's actions in our lives. He's shown us already, I do love you. I've shown it because I came and gave up my life for you. So as someone said this past week, tweeting about Easter, they said, it's, the cross shows us what our suffering can't mean. It can't mean that God doesn't love us. Because he's already shown us in the cross that he does. Now there is way more, way more that I would like to say about that, but that shows us at least Jesus has love for the dying. He loves those who are suffering and dying, and he enters into that suffering. Let's look now at how Jesus has authority over death. Jesus has authority over death. Now this is staggering and amazing, really, because just like Jesus came through on his promise in verse 5 where he said that he loved Lazarus and then he came through in verse 35. So now is Jesus' claim to have authority over death itself. He comes through and shows that he can follow up on that promise too. Look at verse 23 of the passage. Martha, the first sister, she comes to Jesus, expresses her disappointment, sadness, not understanding Jesus' actions. And in response to what she says, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 23, your brother will rise again. But then thinking Jesus is talking about some future day, all Jews believe there would be this great resurrection of all God's people at some final day in the end. So she says, yeah, I know. I know, Jesus. Yeah, amen. I know one day my brother's going to rise again. But then look at verse 25. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about some future day, some resurrection coming. That resurrection is here, right now, standing in front of you. It's me. And then, Jesus almost kind of calls Martha out a bit, right? Look at the end of verse 26. (coughs) He says, do you believe this? Do you believe it? Which means, I think at least shows us, that Jesus knows how to deal with each one of us individually. He doesn't deal with us all the same. He knows how we need to be dealt with specifically. Because remember, he dealt very differently with Mary when she asked him the same question. Here to Mary, he, he brings her the, the truth and the facts. With Mary, he weeps with her. Now, when Jesus says, do you believe this? She says, yeah, yes, I, I do believe. That's verse 27. But It's pretty clear as we read on, either she doesn't really understand the question or she's just kind of telling Jesus what she thinks he wants to hear. Because if you get down to verse 39, Jesus tells the people, okay, roll away the stone from Lazarus' tomb. And the first one trying to stop him, grabbing him by the robe, is Martha. She's like, no, 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 what? what? No. You You can't do that. Why would you want to open the tomb? He's been in there four days now. He's decomposing. I mean, that's not a quote. She wouldn't have said decomposed. She would have said, he, his body stink now by that time. 
So it's clear she has no idea in her mind that Jesus is literally going to raise up her brother from the dead right now. But in an unprecedented, unbelievable display of both his love and his power and authority over death, verse 43, Jesus stands at the entrance to Lazarus' tomb and in a loud voice, the Greek, the New Testament is written in Greek, the word that it uses for loud voice is phon megale. What does that sound like to you? Megaphone. With a megaphone, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And look at verse 44. The dead man came out. He, he listened to him. It says, still wrapped up in his stuff. It means he would have come hopping out like this. It would have been some like kind of morbid potato sack race. Comes hopping out of the tomb, all wrapped up. And they says, Take off the grave clothes. He's alive. So it's amazing. Jesus is showing his authority to call the dead to life. Maybe it doesn't seem relevant at first, but when you read that, do you kind of wonder, like, if you were there, do you wonder, like, what would it have sounded like? How did, he, how did Jesus sound when he called them out? What was that like? Because we hear about somebody calling and waking someone up as we're kids. The voice most of us are used to is our mother being like, Honey, time to get up. School, whatever. And if we just read this, I mean, it sounds like it's kind of an open air thing. It could be some sort of like Shakespeare in the park. I mean, Jesus could have been in some English accent. Oh, Lazarus, come thou thither, or whatever. We, we don't really know what it was like. And yet we get a pretty strong indication of what it would have been like when we look at these words describing how Jesus felt in verses 33 and 38. You see how it says twice there, Jesus was, quote, deeply moved. Deeply moved. Now, when we look at that in English, we think about someone who's overcome with grief. I'm deeply moved. And yet... When we understand the Greek words that they interpret as deeply moved, you know what it's describing? It's not grief at all. It's anger. Anger. Deeply moved, this word in the Greek, is actually the same word used to describe the snorting of horses as they charge into battle. Which means, when Jesus is standing at the tomb of Lazarus and he calls him out, not only is he sad at the loss of his friend, he's angry. Angry what? Angry at Lazarus? Angry at his sisters? No. He's angry at death. He's angry at death. Why? Because sickness and death were never meant to be a part of God's creation. He never intended for us to experience these things. And just as if you had made a beautiful piece of art and someone wrecked it, You'd be angry at that so Jesus here, angry at death's destructive work of his creation, here specifically of his friend that he loves. Do you know what that means? That means when Jesus stood at the tomb of his friend and cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! It means that that was not a mournful wail. It was actually a battle cry. Picture whatever scene you need to, Braveheart, Standing with like hundreds of men and horses crying out with their, that's how Jesus is saying, Lazarus, come out. 
as he charges against the enemy of death. And the dead man listens. And Jesus shows he is powerful to defeat death. A few things we see right away. You know what that means? That means Jesus has absolute authority over death. He has it. He could make good on his promise in verse 23 to Martha, your brother will rise again. He can do it. He can back up his promises. He can do that because he's the resurrection and the life. The other thing we need to see here when we read this is that whenever Jesus performs a miracle like this in front of people, he's absolutely trying to demonstrate his deity to the people who are watching. We see that in verse 42. Jesus is he's praying out loud. He's saying, Father, I thank you that you hear me. And he says, I'm praying to you. I know you always hear me, but I'm doing this so that the people here will believe that you sent me. He's saying, I am sent by God. I am one who has the power and authority of God. I am God himself, and I have the power and authority to raise up this man. That's what he's doing here. But these miracles also almost always have a story attached to them as well. There's, they're trying to teach a deeper spiritual significance as well, almost like a parable. A couple weeks ago in John 9, we looked at how Jesus healed a man who had been blind from birth. And what we saw there was that Jesus, the light of the world, has, has power to, to give physical sight to people. But you remember what we also saw was that it was teaching us something about our spiritual condition, that before God, although we can see with our eyes right now, spiritually speaking, each one of us, were blind and we can't see. And Jesus, the light of the world, has the power to give us the light that we need. So it was teaching us something as well. Same thing here in John 11. Jesus' miracle shows us that he has divine power over death as the resurrection and the life. He has the power to raise up dead physically people. But... What it's showing us is that just like Lazarus, spiritually speaking, each one of us are dead. The Bible describes us as being dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from God and dead. And all of us in need of this same call from Jesus to call us to life once again. So Jesus has the power and authority to do that. That's what he's showing us here, but maybe you've sensed a problem already. Because this was, what, 2,000 years ago? Cool. That's pretty cool that he could do that. Wow. Doesn't help me much right now. I mean, I'm living here 2017. It seems like he's an amazing miracle worker. If anything, maybe that at best gives us a longing for Jesus. Like, man, I sure wish I could have been around then to see that. I would have liked to have known uh, that power myself, but I can't. And we just sort of look back longingly, like you know, some of us who look back at some previous generations who got to enjoy way better music than we did right now. We get to look back and say, man, look at these guys. They got to enjoy Cream and Hendrix, the Beatles. We get to enjoy, like, I'm not going to say anything. I'll probably offend some people, but not as good music. And that's all we can do. We can just sort of look back and say, man, I wish, I wish we could have known that. And yet, that's why we need to look finally, very quickly. Jesus' death offers us true life today. Jesus' death 
offers us true life. And that's essential because if you didn't know, what we don't celebrate at Easter is Lazarus' resurrection. We don't celebrate that. You know why? Because at some point down the road, a few years later, Lazarus, he died again. He had a moment where all of a sudden he was like, oh yeah, I remember how this goes, and he died. No. What we celebrate year after year at Easter is Jesus' death and his resurrection. Why? First of all, because of what his death means, the significance of what it means. And secondly, because when he rose again, as we believe three days later, he went around for 40 days proving to people that he had risen from the dead and then ascended into heaven. He's alive there still today. He is still alive. So first of all, the significance, what, what does Jesus' death even mean? The significance of Jesus coming to earth, dying on a Roman cross, it wasn't only a, a demonstration of love. It was that, but it was also for a purpose. He came for a purpose. And that purpose, the Bible tells us, was to make a payment. To make a payment for our sin. See, from the very beginning, what the Bible tells us is that although God created this world and everything in it and he made it good and perfect, when mankind rebelled against God and sinned, that creation and everything in it was fractured. It no longer works the way it's supposed to anymore. In fact, the Bible would say one of the reasons we have things like disease and death today is because of sin in the world. But again, in love for us, in love, God sent Jesus, who although he had never sinned, to be a payment for our sins, so that when we put our trust in him, when we make him the point of our lives instead of us, that payment that he made for the debt that we owe now gets put on us. The debt is transferred off us and onto him. And then, you know what that means? You know what the resurrection means? The resurrection means God accepted his payment. Because if he just came and, and died, it doesn't really accomplish anything. It shows us a, a great example of love. But you know what it means? If Jesus is still in the grave today, it means he's a liar. He's not who he said he was, and none of the things he said were true. But if he is raised from the dead, that means that everything he said, all the things he did, all the things he taught were true. So the resurrection that we celebrate every Easter, that's like God's receipt that he hands to Jesus and he says, yes, the debt is paid in full. The check that we can never afford to pay, no matter how many years of dishes we washed, he paid in full in his death and he proved it by rising again three days later. And he did that so that we could be reconciled to God again. We could have that relationship restored that was broken all those many centuries ago in the Garden of Eden. But what it also means for you and I today is that if Jesus is risen, we don't have to look back longingly at some historical figure who could do amazing things. He's alive today and he can still do those things. If Jesus is risen and alive today, which I believe with all my heart that he is, I believe the Bible teaches that he is risen and alive again, and there's a ton of great historical evidence for that. What that means is that he still has authority over death today. 
He still has power both to raise you spiritually to life when you make him the point of your life, and as well, he also has the power to raise you physically to life again when the days of this life come to a close. He can do both because he's still alive today. That's what Jesus means. That's what he's trying to show us by saying this cryptic sounding words, I am the resurrection and the life. That's what he means. It's what it's all about. It's why every Easter we celebrate both those things, his death as well as his resurrection on our behalf. And to take that same picture that we started with, what that means is that when we put our faith in Jesus, when we make him the point of our lives instead of ourselves, he has the power to take those big boulders in the middle of our highway to life and roll them aside. He's got the power to push that boulder right out of the way, the same way he removed the stone from Lazarus' tomb and from his own tomb as well. He's got the power to remove the stones that block our path to life and give us true life. What it means is that now if Jesus has risen, his resurrection can also become our own. You know, Jesus said as much about himself in this in John 10.10. He told those who were following him, the whole reason I've come is so that you could have life. That's what I want you to have. I've come for you to have that. I want that for you. Life like no other. Life to the full. Life like you've never experienced before. Life that you can have when you stop seeing yourself as the point and your own enjoyment as the point of life and you make me the point Instead, I offer you life like no other. Matthew 16, 25, Jesus says this. Whoever seeks to save his life, whoever seeks to to make themselves and their own enjoyment of life the point, will lose it. We try so hard to, to cling on to my own definition, my own understanding of life and enjoyment. The harder I cling, the more likely it means I'm going to lose it. We can't hang on to it. Death has a 100% success rate. It will take it from you. But Jesus says, but whoever loses his life for my sake, i.e., whoever is willing to step down off the throne of their heart and make me the point instead, he says, you'll find it. You'll find it. That's what's so amazing and different about Jesus than any other man who's ever lived, any other Religion, you could ever investigate or find out what's different and unique about Jesus alone is that even though today, Easter, (coughs) Easter is Jesus' party, it's his party, and yet he invites us to that party and he gives us the biggest gift of all. He gives it to us at his own party, the gift of life. (coughs) Life to the full, life like no other. I pray today you might know that life yourself. You can know it today when you would surrender your life to him and say, I don't want to be the point of life anymore. I can't can't do it. I can't sustain it. I want you to be the point of my life. He offers you that life today. I pray that you might know it. Let's pray together. (coughs) I'd ask those of you helping me to serve communion if you'd come forward as well. Lord Jesus, we're amazed 
as we come today to celebrate your death and resurrection and what it means. We try so hard to do things our own way. We want to be the point so badly, and yet the harder we try and the harder we push to do that, the more we fail, the more it doesn't work. You forgive us for trying. Reveal to us today the life that you want us to have, the life that is freely available and the life that you purchased for us in your death and resurrection. And as we accept that, as we make you the point, may we truly experience now and even at our own physical death here, life like no other. For you say that whoever believes in you, even though he dies, will live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.